Well, good morning, church. As we begin, I want to begin with a question. How many of you have ever experienced conflict and division in the local church? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? So let me, let me refine my question then, because I knew that question was too broad. I think our first graders could say yes, right? So, so let, let's narrow down the question. I'm not talking about the kind of conflict that's that, that centered on the clearest things in the Bible. You know, like the fundamental truths of the gospel, non-negotiable. The, the, the true nature of sin, not negotiable. The inspiration and authority of the Bible itself, not negotiable. These are necessary conflicts if and when they come up. Because they force us to either humbly stand underneath the authority of God's word or to, or to put ourselves over God's word as self-appointed authorities. So, so there's, there's conflicts that are worthwhile to have. They're necessary because fundamental truths are at stake and we must stand for them. So I'm not talking about that kind of conflict. I'm also not talking about the kind of conflict that boils up around arrogant or angry know-it-alls, nor the conflict that boils up around those who take offense at the smallest of issues. We know there's both kinds of people. Rather, the kind of conflict that we are talking about this morning is a kind of conflict that, that stems from different convictions about how to glorify God the best and carry out the gospel mission which he's given us. That's the kind of conflict we're talking about today. It's about bringing God glory. It's about doing what God has called us to do. Yet it is the very kind of division and conflict that can fracture relationships, that can divide elders and split entire churches even though their intent, focus, is to honor God. And if you've ever experienced this kind of conflict, you, you just know it's, it's disorientating. It's aggravating and in many cases, it leaves us with deep wounds that fuel long-standing patterns of anger and bitterness and self-pity and self-protection that leave us dreaming of and longing for and maybe even start looking for that perfect church in which everyone always agrees. But the blatantly honest account in our passage today exposes the pure fantasy of these idealistic dreams. Because if there's any partnership that should have withstood the test of time and gone through anything that ever came against it, it would have been, it should have been the partnership between Paul and Barnabas. I mean, I mean, you look at, I mean, after all they've accomplished together, after all they've done and gone through, their, their bond should have been unbreakable but it wasn't yet there's an encouraging development as we're going to see this morning in this in this sad and unexpected division 
The interesting thing we're going to see is this does not cripple the church in Antioch, nor does it destroy the church's passion to disciple new believers and continue proclaiming the gospel. It doesn't cripple it. They don't cave in, no. No, rather in the providence of God, we're going to see that it produces two ministry teams and sets the stage for an epic turnaround in the life of a very tarnished disciple. So let's turn to our text this morning, verses 36 through 41. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia and strengthened the churches. Now, as we begin, it's important to put this in context. I know we had a one-week break in between the last time we were in Acts and now, but let's put it back in context. What just happened in chapter 15? The church was facing the most just ginormous question before them. What are we going to do with the law of Moses? Do Gentiles have to keep the law of Moses? Do Gentile males have to be circumcised in order for them to be saved? It's a question. It threatened the unity of the early church. It could have resulted in two distinct churches, a Gentile church and a Jewish church, but it didn't. It didn't result in that because the Jerusalem Council recognized God's promises through the Old Testament prophets. They saw what God was promising, and at the same time in the present, they saw his obvious outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Gentile believers, proving that God was in this. And as a result of the council's decision to not compel these Gentile Christians to uphold and abide by the law of Moses... We see a decision that brings great joy and encouragement and unity to both churches in Antioch and in Jerusalem. There's great joy. It's excellent. That's that's where we end right before we begin today. And we might be thinking, what could possibly threaten the church? I mean, we're in chapter 15. We've seen them face persecution. We've seen them face all sorts of challenges, even this last one in chapter 15. And, and, and the church continues to move forward. And it looks so good when it starts. Paul grabs Barnabas. And he says, hey man, let's go visit the brothers. Let's go visit. I mean, we proclaim the word of the Lord. Let's see how they're doing. I love these guys and I care about them and I know you do too. Let's go see how they're doing. It's a God-honoring goal, right? There's nothing negative about what he's proposing. Yet it's this very goal and this loving concern for other believers that boils over into irreconcilable conflict 
between one of the most dynamic ministry teams in the history of the church. And, and I know we come to this and we kind, of, we kind of start wrestling with the question, who's right? Who's right, Paul? Is it Barnabas? Well, let's see what we see. Let's take a closer look at the conflict. Let's start with Barnabas. When it, when it comes to Barnabas, it is rather easy to grasp his desire to include Mark. Right? I mean, it makes sense. I mean, it aligns with our general belief that everyone deserves a second chance. Now, do we always give people a second chance? No, we don't. But we also have this belief inside of us. Most people deserve a second chance. That, that's, just, that's just how we roll most of the time. And on the other hand, it's just how Barnabas has behaved through this entire book, right? I mean, how have we seen Barnabas behave and interact with other people? Because we saw Barnabas all the way back in chapter 4, remember? Barnabas, in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 through 37. What did we see then about Barnabas? Barnabas is a generous and gracious dude. He not only sells a piece of land to provide for the physical and financial needs of people in his local church, he already has a nickname. He has a nickname, and it's chapter 4. His real name is, is Joseph, but everybody calls him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And that's the only way we know Barnabas through the whole story. We only know him as son of encouragement. We don't really know him as Joseph. We know him only as son of encouragement. That's the kind of guy he is. In fact, we've witnessed this very disposition in Acts after Paul comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus stops him on the road, right? Paul comes to faith. And a little bit later, Paul's like, hey, I'm going to go join the church and, and visit some of the guys in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, nobody wants to talk to Paul. He can't find a Christian in the entire city of Jerusalem that wants to talk to him. They're all running away. I mean, I mean, after all, he stood by and approved and gathered the coats for the stoning of Stephen, and he went house to house grabbing Christians, hauling them off to jail, and he was on the road to Damascus to go do the same. He doesn't have a very good track record, Yet, yet it's in the midst of this fear when the church is going, we don't know what to do with Paul. Is it real? Is it not real? Is he just trying to get more Christians in jail? And it's not one of the 12 disciples that go to Paul. Just think about it. It's not Peter. For all of Peter's brashness and, and courage, it's not Peter. It's Barnabas. Barnabas goes to Paul. Barnabas takes Paul by the hand and brings him to the disciples and he's the one who makes the connection and says, you need to listen to this guy. We see that in Acts 9, 26-30. Later on, we get news that the Gentile church is growing leaps and bounds in Antioch. And what does the church in Jerusalem do? They don't send one of the disciples up there. They send Barnabas up to Antioch. 
And Barnabas goes up there and he starts checking out what's going on. He's really excited. He starts discipling people and training people, quickly realizes that it is way bigger than him. So what does Barnabas do? He goes further north up to Tarsus, which is where Paul was at that time to bring him back so he can help him disciple all these new Christians. Acts 11, starting in verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is Barnabas. This is just the kind of guy that he is. Even more, when we look at what Barnabas is advocating for John Mark, it is in complete alignment with what Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how, many, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And he's going, hey, I'm giving it more than everybody else does. And Jesus says, no, 70 times 7. Not a number to achieve, but say, no, no, we don't, we don't put a number on it, man. It's what we do. So, so as we look at the case for Barnabas, I mean, it's like, why shouldn't he be including Barnabas? He seems to have the upper hand. And, and given the fact that Paul has received the very same kind of grace that Barnabas is showing to John Mark, it seems like Paul would have something in his heart to go, yes, we should do this, but he says no. So let's turn our attention to Paul. Why is he so dead set? Why is he so dead set against John Mark coming? Let's go to verse 38. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Let me just let me just three, make three observations here. Number one, as we look at the text here, Paul does not seem to be arguing from a position of bitterness and unforgiveness, but prudence and caution. What, what does the text say? He doesn't think it's wise. He's saying it's 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 not wise to take John Mark. It's not wise. And, and what's the reason? He doesn't believe it's wise because Mark totally bailed on them when they left Cyprus. And Cyprus was a cakewalk. It was a pretty nice visit. There was nothing bad that happened in Cyprus. Yet it's after Cyprus that Mark says, I am not going any farther. In fact, here in the text when it says they deserted him, the, the, the Greek root word here is actually the Greek root word that we have for apostasy, like somebody leaving the faith. It's a strong word, and it's the very same word used of Mark leaving the party and going back home. He flat out refuses to accompany them. And why does it matter? It's because they've been appointed for a work. Paul and Barnabas were set out to do what? To proclaim the gospel. Their work requires dedication. Their work requires perseverance. It requires people who can do the job. In addition to this, there, there's, there's something that Luke does not include in this encounter. There's some information that he does not give us in this text. It's the fact that John Mark and Barnabas are cousins. They're 
cousins. Colossians 4.10. See, this, 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 kind of, this kind of adds some complexity to the situation. See, see, when we have disagreements about stuff like this, there's always complexity. I mean, how's Paul to know? Are you really fighting for a second chance for just a person? Or are you fighting for him because he's your cousin? Like, how's Paul ever going to get the answer to that? See, when we put these facts all together and we put it on the table, Paul's argument seems to be something like this. Hey, Barnabas. We need to weigh the few, the, the, the true physical demands and the eternal implications of our ministry in these dangerous areas. There, there's physical demands and there's eternal implications. This is more than just the feelings of John Mark. I mean, I mean, if John Mark abandoned us before anything ever got hard while we were in Cyprus, how can we trust him not to bail on us when a mob runs us out of town or tries to stone us to death? Remember first missionary journey? Everything starts to get pretty hard after they leave Cyprus. Run out of town, run out of town. Paul is stoned and left for dead outside the city. I mean, if Mark gave up then, what's Mark going to do then? Even more. If you remember the end of Paul's first missionary journey, what's he calling the disciples to do? To persevere in the faith. They're in hard places. There's temptations to abandon the gospel because of all the pressure they're facing. And he's like, no, no, stand firm in the gospel. Don't abandon it. Persevere in the gospel. And if he's calling these disciples to stand fast in the face of opposition and persecution, how in the world is his message going to register if somebody in his party walks away or runs away when it gets hard. Somebody who's an official representative of the church that has sent Paul. To put it simply, Paul could be saying, dude, how are they ever going to take us serious if John Mark does this and runs away when things get hard? Like, you think they're going to listen to us? See, what we see in this text here is that Barnabas is arguing out of a true pastoral concern. Where Paul is arguing out of, out of prudence or a practical concern for the difficult requirement that, that come up in missionary work and the ultimate success of their missionary work in regions that have already shown themselves to be hostile to the gospel. And it's interesting as we read this that Luke does not openly criticize either man's position. Normally in narrative we get an indication. There's, there's, there's something that, that really kind of points us to one or the other but he doesn't really point us here. Even though it results in an irreconcilable conflict that divides these two great ministers of the gospel. Luke doesn't take sides in it. 
as one commentator notes on this passage, this is a classic example of the perpetual problem of whether to place the interest of the individual or the work as a whole first. And he says, sadly, there's no perfect rule of thumb for dealing with it. It's hard. Yet what resulted in this division? What, what, what solution do they come up with? Well, the one thing we do see is the gospel continues to go out. This conflict does not stop gospel work from going out. No, in fact, we actually see two missionary teams now moving out from Antioch, both pressed to do what they believe is honoring God. They are discipling these churches and helping them move forward in their faith. Barnabas is grabbing Mark, and they're going to Cyprus. And if you remember, where is Barnabas from? He's from Cyprus. So he not only has connections in Cyprus, he likely has family in Cyprus, which makes it an ideal place for him to have Mark and to work and have Mark in an area where it is not threatening and they can work on Mark. And if Mark does stumble and fall, there's a greater chance to backstop him. Or what does Paul do? Paul grabs Silas and we find out a little bit later on in Acts he's also taking Luke and he's going to go visit the churches in Galatia where they visited in their first missionary journey and then quickly they're going to be transitioning on into the second missionary journey into Macedonia. And as I've been just reading forward, kind of getting prepped into just how to preach through this second missionary journey, the one thing that comes clear throughout the second missionary journey is, is that it is a hard, hard, hard journey. So in that, even, even looking forward, we see some wisdom in Paul. See, see I think in this text this morning, we, we see the providence of God in at least two different ways. At least two different ways. But before we get to the two, two different ways, I, I, I want to I unpack what I mean by providence. It, it's a term that we don't use all that often, and, and, and by providence, let me begin with what I don't mean. Providence is not, well, it just all works out in the end. That's not providence. And, and providence also is not to say that God somehow forced Paul and Barnabas to fight with each other. That's not providence, no. What, what do I mean by providence? Well, I'd like to quote a small section from the the elder affirmation of faith at my former church. I think that captures it very well. It's a term that refers to the biblical truth. And we have it up, we'll leave it up here if you want to write it down. That God upholds and governs all things. And when we say all things, we're talking about galaxies to subatomic particles, from the forces of nature to the movements of nations, from the public plans of politicians to the secret acts of solitary persons. And he, and, he, and he governs all those things all in accordance with his eternal and all-wise purposes to glorify himself. Then the qualification. Yet in a way that he never sins, nor he ever condemns a person unjustly, but that in his ordaining and governing all things, 
is compatible with the moral accountability of all persons created in his image. Notice we're keeping both sides in tension here. And the balance of the statement is very, very important. It, it, it doesn't try to diminish God's sovereignty. It doesn't try to diminish his omnipotent control over all things. Nor does it diminish in one iota the true gravity of mankind's personal choices that we make. It doesn't diminish that either. It holds them in tension. It affirms these are things that we see in God's word. And in this, what is it affirming? Nothing. Nothing can derail God's plans because he governs all things in accordance with his all-wise purposes to glorify himself. It affirms that. And it affirms that human make, humans make very real choices that have very real consequences in their lives and the lives of those around them. Which means we can never use God's providence as an excuse to whitewash our disobedience or sin. It's an important balance. So, so when I speak of providence, that's, that's what I'm talking about. But it leads us to question, if God is actively working in all these things for his purposes and glory, how do we see God's providence in this ugly separation between Paul and Barnabas? And I'd like to highlight two ways. Two ways I think that we see God's providence in this. The first thing, the way that we see God's providence in this separation is that it produced two ministry teams who are still pursuing the same overall goal. And we touched on this. They're not against each other. They're not trying to promote two different gospels. That they're not trying to make a following for themselves bigger than the other guy. You know, it's not kind of like two, two churches across the street competing with each other. No. No, Paul, Paul, at the very beginning, where did he want to go? He wanted to go to all the churches in which they had been. And so Paul ends up not going to Cyprus, but Barnabas goes to Cyprus. That's a place they'd been. Paul takes his group to another set of churches. They've divided the labor. And in this disagreement, we have John Mark and Barnabas being free to do something and Paul being free to focus in another area. Which in the long term even fits with kind of Paul's ministry groove in that we saw when they were in Cyprus, Cyprus was, was primarily Jews and where they've gone in their other journeys through Galatia was pr- primarily Gentiles. And to a degree when we look at this, these two teams, we highlight it, it can sound like we're trying to whitewash the event. We're trying to minimize it. But I want to highlight again. I have not found a place in Acts or in the New Testament where Paul or Barnabas are chastised over this. It's not presented in the most beautiful terms, but we don't have one or the other being chastised. Even more, there's actual spiritual fruit that comes from both of these ministry teams. There's true spiritual fruit. And that's why I think that, that, that it's, it's God, is, God is working. Yes, men are making decisions. Yes, they are culpable for those decisions. 
And we will find out on the final day what God has to think about that division. It has not been recorded for us. But what we do see is we see true spiritual fruit come out of both ministries. In fact, Paul's own letters point us to the most glorious fruit. Even though we don't have any record of what Barnabas does in Cyprus, there is a glorious record of something that comes out of this. And it is most unexpected. It's that John Mark becomes a faithful gospel servant. And he ends up serving at Paul's right hand as a fellow co-worker and gospel minister. He ends up serving with the man who refused to take him on his second journey. That's pretty amazing. Especially if we're honest about how we feel about people who spurn us. If we, if we think about how we respond to somebody who's pushed us out, the thought that we would ever interact with them again, much, much more serve side by side in ministry with them again? Like, no way. Yet it's what we see happen. Let me, let me walk you through some beautiful passages about what happens in the life of God, John Mark and his relationship with Paul. So let's fast forward the clock here. We're going to jump forward about ten, roughly 10 years forward from the conflict, 10 years. Where's Paul? Paul's under house arrest. He's writing letters. He has some guys gathered around him, supporting him. And he writes a letter to the church in Colossae. Colossians chapter four, starting in verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So, so wait, wait, what's Paul's point? These are men who are Jews, who are supporting gospel mission. They have been an incredible comfort to him. And who is one of the people who's been an incredible comfort to Paul? It's John Mark. And he writes about it. He wants them to know. And he even gives them this parenthetical statement that says, hey, if he comes to you, you'd better welcome him. How come he didn't write it about anybody else? Like, like, he only wrote about John Mark. I think there's a good possibility here. The church knows about the blow-up. The church knows that Mar- John Mark bailed on them in out of, coming out of Cyprus. They know that that missionary team that used to be Paul and Barnabas is no longer Paul and Barnabas because of one man mainly, and that's John Mark. And Paul is saying, if he comes, you better welcome him. Because he has been an incredible comfort to me. That's important. That's a, that's a change in perspective for the Apostle Paul, and it's an obvious change in the life of John Mark. Somewhere about the same time, letters maybe even sent at the same time, Paul writes this tiny little one-page letter to a rather wealthy Christian 
who had a runaway slave named Onesimus. And in this letter, he brings up John Mark. And he says this, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you. As so do Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. Notice, how does Mark get categorized in this verse? After Epaphras, number one, who gets listed first among the workers? The first among the workers is Mark. Mark is the first in the list. And he doesn't just describe Mark as a former failure or an unimportant errand boy. No, he describes him along with the rest as a fellow worker. He is a, a fellow worker with Paul. He is right there side by side in the trenches of ministry. He's not at some lower level. John Mark has become a full-fledged partner in gospel ministry. That's where Mark is. And about five years after this, 15 years after the event, Paul is imprisoned once again, but this prison sentence is, is, is one very different. He wasn't under house arrest. No, he was in a dungeon cell, certainly waiting for his execution. And in his final letter to his beloved partner, Timothy, he says this, 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world. Now, now, Demas we just saw back in Philemon. Demas is a fellow servant. What's up with Demas now? In love with this present world, he's deserted me and he's gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Those two we don't believe are because they're running away. They're probably doing ministry work. Luke alone, the author of Acts, is with me. Get Mark. Isn't that awesome? Bring him. Bring Mark. He's very useful to me. The last moments of his life, months, year or two, what does Paul want? He wants the very man that he refused to take with him. Because there's been a glorious gospel work in his life. He's useful. He's useful. He might have abandoned us 15 years ago at a relatively easy stage of ministry. But, but in his final moments, Paul's saying, man, I want this guy with me now at my right hand side. I want him. See, friends, as Paul Harvey used to say, this is the rest of the story. In the providence of God, this, this painful separation between Paul and Barnabas, you know what it didn't do? It didn't destroy John Mark. It didn't end up destroying him. And, and, when you, and when you look back and you think of how incredible Paul is in the eyes of people and this, this big man looming over the church in, in Paul and his ministry and Barnabas and everything he's done to be, to be rejected. He didn't walk away from everything. 
He didn't. Now, in God's providence, their sharp disagreement over his truly shameful behavior had a deep and profound positive impact on his life. Whether that was right away or whether that took some time, all we can say is that it certainly did occur. And in the long run, it not only resulted in his full restoration to active ministry with the Apostle Paul. Do you know what other doors opened up for the Apostle Mark in this journey? He ends up getting connected with the Apostle Peter. Of all people, a disciple that experienced a similar fall and restoration. Like, like, like John Mark's friends with Peter. And what does he end up doing in the end? He ends up recording the Apostle's account of Jesus' life and ministry in the Gospel of Mark. The very guy that, that Paul refuses to take becomes a gospel writer. That's the amazing fruit of God's providence in this very broken account. Could it have happened another way? I don't know. But it is what happened. See, as I look at this account this morning and try to just boil things down to a main point, my best effort this morning is to put it like this. God continues to advance his gospel purposes even when his faithful but imperfect servants disagree over the best way to carry out their gospel mission. It reminds us God is still responsible for advancing his gospel mission and yes, he carries it out through people and sometimes those people are broken. Sometimes they're more broken than we wish they were. But God does that work. And once again, just as we've seen beginning all the way to the beginning of Acts until now, what do we see? Nothing can stop the advance of the gospel. Every challenge that has come against the gospel to stop it, to blunt it, to redirect it, has been overcome. Even this division. And this is an important development in the storyline of Acts. And I, and I think it points us to two helpful implications as we close. The first is this, and this is really important for every Christian to know. Our disagreements as Christians aren't always as black and white as we'd like them to be. They're not always as black and white as we'd like them to be. You know, just think about it. The fundamental duty of the church is the discipleship of believers in the local church and the proclamation of the gospel both inside and outside the church. That, that is our calling. That is our mission. Yet, yet as we go about doing these tasks, we're always faced with the question of how, right? What does it look like? How? And it's this question that can quickly divide an otherwise united ministry team or a united church, the how. Well, we did it this way at my old church. This is how other people are doing it. The how question. And, and I want to be, be very clear. There are some things that are clearly defined in God's word. So, so I'm, I'm not trying to set aside God's word here. 
Like, like the things that are clearly defined, we grab and we hold on to with both hands and we say, yes, that is black and white. But there's so many other things that are really hard to discern. Like Wayne, the pastoral concern that Barnabas has for John Mark against the very prudent concerns of the Apostle Paul. That's hard. And if you've been around church ministry at any time, you've probably heard that conversation happen. Well, well, you're putting progress above people. Or you're putting this person above ministry progress. We've got to be careful. We need to be people that are quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, and certainly slow to divide over personal preferences and opinions. Because not everything is as black and white as we'd like it to be. And again, that is not trying to be postmodern. Number two. The second implication I'd like to highlight is that, that Mark's restoration, as we see happen outside of this book of Acts, it's really a beacon of hope. For, for anyone who's ever either failed in ministry or, or experienced significant conflict in ministry, because on, on the one hand, there's a lot of people who, who, who are involved in ministry at some point in their life, there's a conflict, and, and on account of that conflict, they have not done a single thing in the church ever since. Well, I tried that once, and it didn't work out well. And maybe it was something that was like Paul and Barnabas, maybe it truly was the person you were serving with was out of line. I don't know. But this reminds us that there's something more important for us to be pursuing. And, and that, that if conflict in the past is something that's, that's preventing you from moving forward, that it, that's something by the grace of God for you to lean into because the gospel is what's most important for us to be pursuing. But the second thing under this heading is the fact that we do not live as Christians under the tyranny of one strike and you're out. We don't. We don't live under the tyranny of one strike and you're out. I mean, every single one of us has failed in our God-given responsibilities in the church and to one another. Think of all the one another verses. Anybody ready to say you've upheld all those? <laughs> the way they're supposed to be? All your responsibilities to God perfectly upheld? No, no, no. Every one of us has failed in some way to walk in faithful obedience to God. Every one of us has. But sometimes, as a result, we can feel tainted. We, we can feel worthless and we can feel unworthy, especially if that was something that was publicly identified. We can feel like God's promises of joy and peace and restoration are true, but somehow they are not true for us. Yeah, it's one strike for me. Everybody else gets multiple chances. You know, and we can, we can feel like there's no hope. 
But these feelings that happen in our lives as intense and as real as they are, because feelings are real. We feel that way. Those feelings are real, but they're not from the Holy Spirit. They're alive from the pit of hell. Because what does God promise through his word? Most clearly, 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's forgiveness and there's, there's restoration. We can go to Psalm 103, starting in verse 10. Speaking of God, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Praise the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers we are what? We are dust. Those are important things to remember. Sure, we live in a day where people get forever canceled and destroyed for one stupid remark 25 years ago in college or one random Facebook post. But that's not the character and disposition of our ever-faithful, never-failing God. He, he, He doesn't treat us like we deserve He knows we're dust. No, no, God never abandons the stumbling but repentant believer. Never. No, he's a gracious God who reforges broken failures into useful tools for his service. That's what our God does. Let's close in a word of prayer.